This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. If you've got a cell phone, your mobile carrier is collecting information about your movements every day. That data is often sold, and it turns out the Public Health Agency of Canada has been one of the buyers during the pandemic. A ping on a map just because you or I went to Costco, how does that impact or how does that affect public health policy? That question will be put to Canada's top doctor, Theresa Tam, and Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos when they appear before the Parliamentary Committee looking into this. The House of Commons Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics spent much of February conducting a study on the collection and use of mobility data by the Government of Canada. The study stems from reports that the Public Health Agency of Canada worked with TELUS and Blue Dot, an artificial intelligence firm, to identify COVID-19 trends based on mobility data, with questions arising about whether there was appropriate disclosures, transparency, and consent from the millions of Canadians whose data may have been collected. I appeared before the committee toward the end of the study, emphasizing that while the activities were arguably legal, something still doesn't sit right with many Canadians. I believe that something is Canada's outdated privacy laws, which are no longer fit for purpose. This week's Law Bites podcast takes you inside the hearing room for my appearance and begins with my opening statement. Good morning. My name is Michael Geist. I'm a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where I hold the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and I'm a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. I appear in a personal capacity, representing only my own views. I'd like to thank the committee for the invitation to appear on this issue, which represents an exceptionally thorny privacy challenge. I recognize that some of your witnesses have brought differing perspectives on the legality and ethics of this collection and use of mobile data. From my perspective, I'd like to start by noting three things. First, ensuring that the data was aggregated and de-identified was a textbook approach to how many organizations have addressed their privacy obligations namely by de-identifying data and placing it outside the scope of personally identifiable information that falls within the law. Second, the potential use of the data in the midst of a global pandemic may well be beneficial. And third, it does not appear that there's a violation of the law because the data itself was aggregated and de-identified and the public notice may not have been seen by many, but that too is not uncommon. I think this creates a genuine privacy quandary The activities were arguably legal. The notice met the low legal standard. TELUS, I think, is widely viewed as seeking to go beyond even the strict statutory requirements. And the project itself had the potential for public health benefits. Now, there could have been improvements. The Privacy Commissioner of Canada, I think, should have been more actively engaged in the process. And the public notification should have been more prominent. There should have been opportunities and still should be opportunities for opting out but I'm not entirely convinced that these steps would have changed very much. The OPC would have surely pushed for more prominent notification and some assurances on the de-identification of the data, but it seems likely the project still would have continued. Similarly, better notices would have benefited the few Canadians that paid attention, but I think we can recognize that it's a fiction to suggest that there are millions actively monitoring privacy policies or similar web pages for possible amendments. Yet despite all of these factors, something doesn't sit right with many Canadians. I believe that the foundational problem that the incident highlights is that our laws are no longer fit for purpose and in dire need of reform. 
It's not that I think we need laws that would ban or prohibit this activity. Again, most recognize the potential benefits. Rather, we need laws that provide greater assurances that our information is protected and will not be misused, that policies are transparent, and that consent is informed. That doesn't come from baking in broad exceptions under the law that permit the activity because the law doesn't apply. Instead, it means updating our laws so that they contemplate these kinds of activities and provide a legal and regulatory roadmap for how to implement them in a privacy protective manner. The need for reform applies to both the Privacy Act and PIPIDA. With respect to the Privacy Act, there have been multiple studies and successive privacy commissioners who have sounded the alarm on legislation that is viewed as outdated and inadequate. Canadians rightly expect that the privacy rules that govern the collection, use, and disclosure of their personal information by the federal government will meet the highest standards. For decades, we failed to meet that standard. The failure to engage in meaningful Privacy Act reform may be attributable in part to the lack of public awareness of the law and its importance. The Privacy Commissioner has played an important role in educating the public about PIPIDA and broader privacy concerns. The Privacy Act needs to include a similar mandate for public education and research. With respect to PIPIDA, I would need far more than five minutes to identify all the potential reforms. Simply put, the issue has, inex has inexplicably been placed on the back burner. Despite claims it was a priority, the former Bill C-11 was introduced in November 2020, and there was seemingly no effort to even bring it to committee. The bill attracted some criticism, but this isn't rocket science. If Canada is looking for a modernized privacy law and wishes to meet international standards, the starting point is the European Union's GDPR. Notwithstanding some of the recent scare tactics from groups such as the Canadian Marketing Association, the reality is the GDPR is widely recognized as the standard. Global multinationals are familiar with its obligations. There are innovative rules that seek to address the emerging digital challenges. And there are, are tough enforcement powers and penalties. There's room to tweak the rules for Canada, but we should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Modernized privacy rules are not some theoretical exercise. As this recent event demonstrates, failing to implement those rules leaves Canada in a difficult position with potential conflicting rules at the provincial level, compliance strategies that may still undermine public trust, and policy implement choi implementation choices that fail to maximize the benefits that can come from better data. The first line of questioning came from Conservative MP Damien Couric. We've heard from, from various privacy experts who, who have talked a lot about uh, whether or not the data that was sent to the government met the necessary criteria for it to be truly aggregated and de-identified. Um, and whether or not, and, and the government's response largely has been, just trust us on that front. So I'm wondering from both of your perspectives, start, starting with Dr. Geist, um, do you believe that the government met the criteria to ensure that that data was in fact properly de-identified and aggregated and could not be re-identified? It's a great question. I mean, I think, I think the starting point is that, you know, the, the question of whether data can ever be re-identified, can you put Humpty Dumpty back together again, is I think one of the, the, the really exceptional challenges in this area. And we see it play out on a lot of different issues. From what I've seen in the testimony, um, it, 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 it certainly coming from the provider's perspective in terms of their responses and what they tried to do, it does sound like there was a genuine effort 
to, to try to ensure that it would not be identifiable with various guardrails. But I think it does come to the question that Mr. Charbonneau raised, that question of trust, that if you don't have effective frameworks and if you don't have full transparency associated with this, if it's simply buried at the bottom of a web page that no one is going to take a look at, uh, it's natural that people are going to raise these kinds of questions. Appreciate that, and I think you've brought up some 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 key questions. So, so my question, hopefully, I can get to more or less a yes or no answer on this. Did the government act transparently when it comes to the question that this committee is study, studying regarding the collection of mobility data? Well, I think I think it's hard to to say that it's been fully transparent given the the limited disclosure and the and the fact that the privacy commissioner wasn't more actively engaged. It's quite clear this could have been done far better. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Now, now specifically regarding the RFP, um, the certainly it was troubling to me and and many of my constituents as as they reached out as as the media became aware and publicized the 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 information around the issue that we're we're discussing here about the fact that this was not simply limited to COVID. The RFP talked about both COVID policy, but ongoing um, the ongoing need for this data to be used by the government. Uh, do you do you think that's an appropriate? Uh, uh, um, an appropriate uh, path forward for the government uh, to not only use certainly data that was was the government has defended for need during a public health emergency, but do you think it was appropriate for them to say, basically, we need this data for the next five years for for public policy and without providing clear direction as to what that would be used for? Dr. Geist, if I could. Well, I'd start, I mean, if Keeping the, that door open is something that we see both companies and perhaps governments trying to do in terms of potential multi-use of data down the road. And that's partially where, um, where these problems really start to arise, where I think that you can make a credible case in some circumstances, but trying to leave full flexibility down the road starts, I think, really to tear at the, the public trust that, that we've just been hearing, hearing about. And if you've got effective legal rules in place, then that simply isn't an option because what you've got to do when you've got powerful legal rules in place is to justify the use and you try to circumscribe some of those uses so that they're more clear cut and that the consent itself is only valid for those narrow groups of uses as opposed to essentially opening the door to alternative uses down the road as, as issues potentially arise. So, so through through you, Mr. Chair, just to 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 confirm with uh, with Dr. Geist, um, you you do not see then that uh, those those uh, uh, frameworks are adequate to ensure that that information is protected. No, that's I mean, that, and that was really the, the point that I wanted to drive home with my opening statement. I think that at the moment, Thank- both the Privacy Act and PIPEDA simply are not fit for purpose. Up next was Liberal MP Greg Fergus. Merci beaucoup, Monsieur le Président. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. And I would like to thank the two witnesses for being with us today. I would like to start with Dr. Geist. I've been following you for years, and I've always appreciated your point of view. The study at hand has to do with the following. We are examining the use or possession of the Public Health Agency of Canada's use of data without Canadians' full consent. To come back to your statements, you said three things, that the data was depersonalized. 
de-identified or as de-identified as possible, that the goal was relevant to see what Canadians are doing during the pandemic, and third, that we hadn't crossed the threshold of legality. Now, that said, you raised a much broader issue, whether or not our system is adequate. Could you confirm that the data was in fact de-identified and that the data was useful for the creation of public health measures? And third, that we hadn't gone past the standards. And after that, we can discuss the broader issue. Yeah, thanks so much for the question. You know, I must admit it is, uh, I'm not sure that I can, can answer that beyond having read the same transcripts that you will yourself have seen. So, uh, and therein lies part of the problem. So I can't, I can't, no, can I confirm for you that it was fully identified? Not confirmed. I can only go by what has been, what we've been told, what the committee has been told by TELUS and uh, responses from the minister. Based on what I've, the, what I've seen put forward, um, the indications are that that's the case. I think it would have been better to have had the privacy commissioner there operating as an independent agent to provide the kind of insight and um, review that uh, may not have occurred in this case. And that's, I think, one of the shortcomings that we've seen. But the problem as well is it's, it's easy to say just quickly, it's easy to say, yes, it's legal. Part of the problem is it's legal. Part of the problem is if we don't have strong enough consent measures, if we don't have a framework that imbues the kind of trust that we've been talking about, well, then you can both conclude that it's legal and still leave people uncomfortable with what's taking place. I understand completely. But we're examining the matter at hand. And, Professor Geist, some of your colleagues from the University of Ottawa and other experts have stated that the data was properly de-identified and the government did not receive any information that could have been re-identified. So it's not only the public health agency that has stated this, but also experts in the field. I imagine that you are in line with those experts. Yeah, I, I'm in line with the evidence that's been put forward to date. You know, as I say, I'm not an auditor. I'm not in the position that, say, the privacy commissioner would be to be able to go in and fully identify to verify those statements. I'm I'm able to go on the same public publicly available evidence that that they would be and that that you would be. Um, and based on that evidence, yes, it's, it was de-identified. Uh, TELUS made the case that they've got a number of guardrails in terms of what was ultimately accessible to PHAC. And so it's clear that there were steps that were taken to try to, to create those safeguards. But if you're, again, if you're asking me to, to confirm based on some sort of inside knowledge, I, there, there is, that isn't available. This program hasn't been transparent enough. I would ultimately trust the privacy commissioner's view um, where they be given the ability to go in and effectively audit uh, what took place, uh, and then render a verdict on that question. The discussion then shifted to Bloc MP, René Villemur. Dr. Geist, as you know, we're looking at this from an ethical perspective, and you stated a few minutes ago that it seems legal, and I don't disagree. But you might agree with me that something can be legal and not ethical, that legality is the minimum that is required in order to function, but it's not ideal. Do you believe that the current rules are sufficient? Uh, no, I don't think the current rules are sufficient. And, uh, you know, and so I think that, you know, I, I appreciate the committee's mandate maybe to focus on this specific incident, whether it was legal or not. 
Um, but I, I would fear that that would miss the forest for the trees. Um, and I think that the there is an opportunity here to use this particular this particular incident both to highlight the enormous value the data can have. And then by extension, the necessity of ensuring that we've got an effective data framework in Canada that includes adequate privacy safeguards, both within the federal government, the Privacy Act, as well as PIPEDA. And I think we can look at this incident to, to, as, as further evidence that at the moment we just don't have that. What could we do to better manage these circumstances? Well, in, in the particular circumstance, I think that there were a number of things that could have been done better in terms of both transparency of what took place. Uh, I think Christopher Parsons, who appeared before you, does a good job in his brief before the committee of identifying just how, how the, the lack of transparency and how this suddenly appeared on a website. Apologies, I just need to interrupt you for a moment. But if we go beyond the current model. Could we look at role models of other countries that we could look to? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so let me, let, me, let me pick up, you know, extend some of the comments I made at the beginning with respect to PIPEDA on the private sector side, which would of course implicate the obligations that TELUS and Blue Dot would have faced. Um, and that's, you know, that's legislation that's more than two decades old at this point in time. We've seen multiple provinces now move ahead with their own legislation, given that the federal government has been so slow in moving forward. And so, and we've got, as I mentioned off the top, the European GDPR, which is effectively the model that, that many are comfortable with and are already seeking to comply with. It seeks to address some of these kinds of issues in terms of algorithmic transparency, in terms of uh, greater penalties, in terms of identifying some of the newer sorts of issues, right, to be forgotten and others that form the part of what I think is widely viewed as a modernized privacy law, something that Canada no longer has. And adding a privacy tribunal as done with the GDPR is something that could be done here? On the issue of the, the tribunal, there was some opposition to that. I mean, the tribunal was proposed in Bill C-11. I actually had, had less problem with it. I, I thought that um, so long it was a, as it was an expert tribunal, which unfortunately the Bill C-11 did not have. It had a mandate that one of the tribunal members have privacy experience. And I would think that if it's going to be authoritative, it needs to be a true expert tribunal in this area. But there might well be value. I recognize that the privacy commissioner um, has voiced some opposition to that. But I think that at a minimum, we need to get a piece of legislation on the table. We can talk about what that administration looks like uh, through committee study, um, but we're not even getting out of the gate on this issue. NDP MP Matthew Green followed with a discussion that opened up to a wider range of privacy policy issues. Thank you. And I, I definitely appreciate the idea of going back to the forest. I, I would agree that this set of circumstances has opened us up for a much broader conversation. So my questions will be directed to Dr. Geist to refer to some of his comments he made about the Privacy Act being outdated, being inadequate, uh, the need for the highest standards. I've been calling it the gold standard. In fact, the focus of my questioning have been along these lines for the entirety of the study, because I am looking to get out of this study recommendations that could strengthen our legislation so that we're not continuing to uh, you know, chase the ambulance, for lack of a better term, on individual instances of privacy breach, but we are 
creating a standard that that meets or I would even suggest surpass the GDPR. And I say that because of the way in which information is being used uh, politically, uh, disinformation and all these other types of things. And, and that really does come down to being able to profile the end consumer of it. So my question through the chair to Mr. Geist is taking your time to walk through what your top priorities would be to tweak the rules for Canada uh, in a in a new and improved modernized personal information and protection uh, electronics document act reform. What would that look like for you and how would that be the highest standard that Canada could put forward in this moment? Thanks for that question. I'll I'll just take a, a slight detour just to, to to note that the Privacy Act, the part in terms of the obligations that the federal government would has with respect to privacy, uh, should not be overlooked at all. If anything, there's a core element there when we talk about the increasing desire for government and someone say the need for government to have more data to make better data driven decisions that may necessarily implicate data collection issues. And uh, in the case of the Privacy Act, that is even older in terms of uh, when it was drafted and have not been failed and so been updated. Mr. Chair, Dr. Dice, this is a great opportunity. Uh, maybe start with there. Where would, what would be your top priorities for the Privacy Act? And then if you could use the remainder of your time to get into PIPIDA, because I do believe you're quite right that it is uh, a, a process of holding both um, sides of government and private sector accountable, because what we heard suggested about what is legal versus what is ethical, doing indirectly what you can't do directly remains to be a problem if we don't have a, uh, a modernized reform on both sides. So feel free to, to expand on that in whatever direction you'd like to take. Okay, well, thank you for that opportunity. And I'll, I'll note that, you know, the, I've, I've had the pleasure of appearing before this committee through multiple parliaments. And I'll tell you that this committee has issued multiple studies uh, on this question and made recommendations. So um, I'm not, there, there isn't a lot to rewrite here. It's one of these issues that just never seems to rise to the level of actual legislation. But amongst the things that we could do, I mentioned off the top, the ability for the privacy commissioner to play a more proactive role in terms of public education and research about the relationship Canadians have with their governments in terms of the data that gets collected. Strengthen protections so that uh, limitations, for example, on the data that government collects so that that information is, all, the all, information is only collected that where it is strictly necessary for its programs or activities. That harkens back to one of the earlier questions of keeping the door open to other kinds of uses. There's a need to ensure that, in fact, it's the opposite. Not only that we carefully circumscribe what gets collected, um, but that we identify that right from the very beginning breach disclosure related issues in terms of ensuring that the data that is collected, if it is put at risk, and we have had incidents in the past, are the individual users themselves are adequately informed, privacy impact assessments are necessary uh, to ensure and embed those within the law where some of these new programs are launched. And then when we, when we think about this kind of issue particular, which really opens the door to these large data sets, thinking about the interaction that the federal government may have with private sector participants, because this represents sort of a, a, a relatively new situation. It used to be the government might collect the data itself. Now we have effectively platforms or intermediaries that may be collecting some of that data and making it accessible to government and establishing the effect, effective precautions and safeguards in that regard. Was, the, was appropriate consent 
uh, obtained. Is it de-identified? Have you worked with the privacy commissioner to ensure that's the case? If it was, even if it was de-identified, what level of consent was obtained, as in this kind of case, are some of the kinds of things that we could be and I think should be thinking about with respect to the Privacy Act. In terms of PIPA reform, as I say, I think the, the way I would do it to be totally candid is to, to sit there with a GDPR text on the one hand, look at PIPA on the other, and then add in the bill um, that comes forward and start engage in a benchmarking exercise to sort of see where do we stand. And that's not to suggest that there can't be Canadian specific reforms. Uh, I think there unquestionably can be. But I think it is universally acknowledged that, uh, you know, a, an easy one, of course, is the enforcement side of things. We don't have strong penalties. Our federal commissioner doesn't even have order making power. Uh, that, that, would put the feder that puts the federal commissioner in a position, unlike almost any other privacy or data commissioner anywhere in the world, in terms of not having the necessary tools to ensure effective compliance. Conservative MP Ryan Williams picked up on the GDPR discussion. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair, and thank you to our witnesses today. This has been uh, great to listen to and to, to see what the gold standard is, especially with uh, GDPR and, and seeing what's happening across the globe. One of the things I wanted to focus on today to start was uh, when it relates to GDPR and we look at permanent versus temporary measures. And I'm wondering if, if anything, and I'll start with Dr. Geist, has anything been written in that, uh, in that legislation of that protection in the EU to look at uh, the difference between um, where we've had the, the measures through COVID and having to act uh, on, on that side, which is a temporary basis, versus uh, what would be permanent? Has, have you seen anything uh, in there that would relate to, those, uh, to that kind of thinking? Well, I think you know, privacy laws are designed to to be context specific, to, to be context specific, and so that they they ought to be and and should be uh, adaptable to those kinds of situations. So that in a situation where there are heightened concerns, let's say in a global pandemic or in a situation of war, some of the kinds of choices that get made and the balance that that gets struck may well be different on other issues that may be more mundane and don't raise those issues. The same, of course, is true depending on the sensitivity of the information, right? If we're dealing with sensitive health or financial information, the kinds of safeguards we'd expect will maybe be different from questions about where I might have gone for lunch yesterday. So I think the, the law itself uh, is able to account for these different kinds of circumstances. Uh, the problem is that if you don't have effective enforcement of those rules and you haven't modernized some of the consent-related provisions and the like, then you're then then you're then you're then you're working with a very weak hand in terms of ensuring that you've got effective protections. Thank you, Doctor. And until we have more safeguards and, like you said, legislation in place that changes these rules, you know, should Canadians have the option to opt out? of data collection during, let's say, a pandemic or an emergency or, and, and I'm talking about when we have something that's temporary instead of permanent, or, or in, your, in your thinking, would, would it make sense that we can't, that, we, that there's going to be safeguards in an emergency to keep that? How, how, are, how when we look at a permanent versus temporary situation in these laws, how are those rights of Canadians protected in your opinion? Well, I think it depends a little bit on, again, on actually the kind of data. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting question to pause, you know, can you opt out? Well, you can opt out, certainly, or you ought to have the, the right, I would say, to opt out of, say, a program like this. Um, it doesn't seem to me that this is, this is useful information 
um, to be sure. And I think you can make a compelling case that it's valuable to have that sort of information. We see it play out this kind of data in a number of different places. A lot of talk about wastewater, for example, and trying to measure COVID levels that way as well. So we, we, we are anxious to get more data. Um, the ability to opt out uh, in those circumstances would, would seem to be appropriate. There might be circumstances, though, that for the, that the dependence of public health does require certain kinds of disclosures. We get that, of course, or have had that, um, where we go into certain places and are required to disclose um, our vaccination status. That strikes me as, as entirely reasonable. So it, it seems to me that there are, um, there are differences depending uh, on the circumstances that this might be used and the data that's involved. Liberal MP Yara Sachs focused on specific questions associated with transparency of the government's program. Dr. Geist, um, I've read a fair bit of your work, and, and like my colleague, Mr. Fergus, appreciate your insights. It, 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 it's thought-provoking. Um, and I want to talk about transparency because it's something that's come up for you many times in terms of your own writings with regards to the government um, on, on a multitude of issues to do with the internet. So, you know, on March 23rd, 2020, the Prime Minister's website announced uh, publicly and did a press conference about um, engaging PHAC with Blue Dot in order to collect that information and, and use it for the purpose of the pandemic. And then only on March 26th did PHAC actually enter the contract with Blue Dot. And then regularly after that, uh, Dr. Tam through COVID Trends and Twitter and other platforms, aside from, you know, the hard to read government website pages, which we all kind of get blurry eyed about at times, regularly updated what was happening through COVID Trends, made announcements there on an almost weekly basis. And then in addition to that, there were the subsequent announcements of, of interacting with third party privacy assessors on the process. And then finally, you know, another public engagement was with, you know, the correspondence with the OPC with the privacy commissioner on a contract. Let's let's be clear, the contract was from from 2020 till March 18th, 2022. So throughout that time, we've heard about regular bilateral uh, biweekly engagements with the, with the privacy commissioner and a briefing was submitted, I believe it's on February 14th, 2022, where PHAC gave a final briefing and under Section 3 of the Privacy Act, it was determined the assessment concluded that the data did not contain personal information. So there was regular engagement on this. And I just want to ask you, you've talked about, well, we could have done better about the transparency. Um, we're clear about the de-identified anonymized part of it. But in terms of that converse, public conversation that you've alluded to, I, I, could you say how we could have done it better than the spaces that we're working in? Sure, I can try. Um, so I guess I would start by noting that, you know, my read of the commissioner's response was that he felt that his office should have been um, more actively engaged in this process. So, I But I'm talking that. about the public transparency here, uh, okay. you in know, terms, that, because that's what enough. you alluded to. Yeah. All right. In terms of public transparency, I think I, I think your point it sort of highlights how this is this this issue is often addressed by organizations, whether government or the private sector, which is to say, hey, it was all there. All you had to do was go out and find it. Most people don't know what know who Blue Dot is, even if they did, they still wouldn't necessarily know where the data was coming from or how it was collected um, down the line. And so the 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 need for i think full public education on on this in terms of how that data would be collected in the first place and then made more broadly available is really important i was actively involved for example in the covid alert app um, discussions and was as part of one of the studies that um, 
fed into that. And there, there was a recognition that because you needed the public to actively, uh, in, actively install that, there needed to be a significant education program okay. so that they would both trust it I, and understand it. You need to do the same kind of thing in this context so where, we're, those, we're where that kind between, of data is being collected. You. Thank you. We're bleeding between consent and transparency here. And in terms of I'm, I'm trying to understand where we could improve the government's transparency with the public on what we were doing. You're, you're bleeding into the issue of consent on the actual interaction on the data. So, um, and just that'll follow to my next question. So we did have Tell Us for Good here and Pamela, Pamela Snively from their office went through a really detailed uh, explanation of that they not only that their data platform is not only used by PHAC in, in a very controlled setting with supervision, but it's data that's used by universities like the one you're a part of and many other research institutions across the country. And that the privacy standards that they use, which Dr. Ann Kavukian, Privacy by Design, actually extolled and praised TELUS for good in terms of the de-identified data that was used. And you yourself here stated in your opening comments that the pursuit for the perfect should not prevent the good. So what now I can get back to your question, what you were talking, I really wanted to separate it about of what further steps do you feel the government could have taken to be transparent on the data? Okay, and uh, 15 yeah, okay. seconds left. Okay, I, I'm just going to respond that, that in fairness, I don't think that my response is, is shifting over to consent. I think my point with respect to COVID alert and my point here is that if you want people to trust in these programs, you need to explain as much, in as many forums as possible and as clearly as possible what data is collected and what's being used. That happened with COVID alert. I'd argue that did not happen in this context. Conservative MP James Bezin followed. I am very concerned about the, uh, how uh, data has been collected and uh, how it um, could violate uh, Canadians' privacy and, and, and the lack of transparency from the government, uh, the concerns that have been raised by the Privacy Commissioner, I think is troubling to all of us. And Dr. Geis, you wrote in, in a, uh, an article I read here from March of 2020, so we're at the very beginning uh, of, of COVID, and um, you also had a Global Mail op-ed. And you, you mentioned, you know, standards and practices, and you're talking today about the EU. You also talk about Israel and Taiwan as, as better at, at having those guardrails and transparency. Uh, and, you know, really it comes down to, as, as, as Mr. Charbonneau was saying, the, the matter of trust. Do you believe that there is enough guardrails in place, especially when you take a look at how long should this data be allowed to be held uh, by organizations like Blue Dot or by the Public Health Agency in Canada. I know you've suggested in the past like 14 days. Uh, do we believe the government and, and uh, through PHAC and Blue Dot is, is holding that information only for 14 days and then getting rid of it, doing their analysis and moving on um, <clears throat> to help uh, inform um, um, public information and public policy? But more importantly, um, you know, how do we ensure that the regulatory boundaries are in place that will at the end of the day, protect the privacy of Canadians. Yeah, no. Uh, thanks for the thanks for the question, and thanks for um, for bringing back some of the the early stuff that was written um, at those very early stages of COVID. I think, in some ways, that really does highlight how essential it is to get the frameworks right, to have have the kind of transparency and have the guardrails that we're talking about. the The last couple of years have been demonstrative of the need for for both data and public 
uh, active participation in different things. The alert, the COVID alert was a good example of that as well. But you can only get there, I think, if there is public trust in um, those collecting the data, how it will be used, and the oversight that is in place. And I think that we respectfully still fall short in that regard. You know, the commissioner has raised these kinds of concerns and I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone's gonna credibly try to question um, the commissioner when he raises these kinds of issues. And so that that strikes me as a, as a source of, of concern. In terms of how long data is retained, I mean, that's a, a benchmark issue that exists within all modern privacy laws that one only collects, uh, retains data for as long as strictly necessary. And if we're talking about specific trends data, uh, where we're trying to be able to respond rapidly based on emerging trends, that would suggest that uh, there is little reason to retain that data uh, for lengthy periods of time once the, the, the value of it for that particular trend may have passed. Finally, Liberal MP Lisa Hepner picked up on the earlier discussion with Yara Sachs. To the line of questioning that my colleague Yara Sachs was uh, examining, because I don't think we heard a fulsome answer from you. We were talking about transparency, and you were saying the government could have been more transparent with rollout of this program, but we heard that there was a news conference at the time that the program was started. There was regular communications from the uh, from Teresa Tam on social media. As a journalist at the time, I was aware that the government was using mobility data to track whether uh, pandemic measures were being followed, whether uh, any outbreaks were likely to happen. So I was aware that this information was being collected. I'd like to hear from you actual input on how the government could have been more transparent. Do we send a text message to everyone's cell phone? Like if there's if there's a news conference, if it's covered in the media, if it's going out on social media every couple of weeks, there's a website you can refer to. You can see how this information is being used. How do we get more transparency into this process? I, I, I do think, I mean, you're highlighting a number of different things. I, I would say that the COVID alert does provide you with a better example of ad campaigns of multiple ways of trying to, to advertise and communicate so that people are aware of what's taking place and so that the, to the extent to which we're, we're accepting that there's some form of consent here, it is informed. I think the COVID trend site um, could, be, could have and still could make it clear that where the mobile mobility data is coming from so that those Canadians who might be affected by it would, would know that's the case. I think that the COVID Trends website could include a link specifically to TELUS's site so that people who want to opt out of the data for good program would be in a position to do so. Uh, I think that they similarly could include a link to the blue dot opt out data collection, a link to blue dot to allow them to opt out of that. It's both about ensuring that if you have informed consent, both that people are uh, understand what is being asked of them or how their data is being used more particularly and giving them the information they need to be able to opt out if they see fit. That to me uh, is how you go about trying to ensure a high standard with respect to fostering public trust and complying with people's privacy expectations. It's, you know, you can say that, well, listen, we did this, 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 and we were compliant with the law. And I thought I opened by indicating that this was, in my view, compliant with the law. But I think we'll come back to Mr. Charbonneau's point that compliance with the law doesn't always foster trust. And when we want to ensure that we've got trust, because this is important information, and these are the kinds of programs that can be critically important, 
uh, simply simply ensuring that well we tick the right boxes without necessarily doing going that extra mile I think to give people uh, the kind of information they need to make informed choices to be able to opt out which are things that could be done um, to me would have been a better approach. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.